Gale's open, they're away in the Golden Slipper, there's a great start, and Mick Mitt Basque on the extreme outside is about the first out, Jeff Boyle. Jagler on the outside, lunging, but Catlin opening just in front, Jagler trying desperately, can't reach him. Catlin opening has lasted to win the Doncaster by a hit to Jagler. This I podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Inglis. From July the 1st, 10 race programs will become the norm at Sydney's Saturday race meetings. This is the result of the introduction of midway races for horses trained in the smaller metro and provincial stables. Midway races will carry $100,000 in prize money, as will the tab highways up from $75,000, while normal Saturday races will go to $130,000. Country Sky 1 races will go to $24,000, Sky 2 races to $15,000, and Country Non-Tab to $10,000. Another 20 meetings will be added to the Country Showcase Series, where minimum stakes will be $30,000. Feature races to receive a prize money boost are the Epsom to 1.5 million and the time-honoured Villiers goes from 250 to 750,000. The English sales this year have produced unbelievable figures at both ends of the market, a clear indicator that many new owners are coming into the industry as individuals, as members of smaller ownership groups or as members of larger syndicates formed by recognised syndication companies. You don't have to own winks to cover all X's and to have a lot of fun in town, on the provincials or on the country circuit. There's never been a better time to go racing in New South Wales. Bob Charlie has been the recipient of many tributes for his immeasurable contribution to Australian racing. 20 years ago, he was awarded the AO, making him an officer of the Order of Australia. In June of last year, the inaugural Bob Charlie Stakes was run at Randwick for the first time and just a few weeks ago, at a special function in Adelaide, he was inducted into the Australian Racing Hall of Fame. And I feel the latter acknowledgement perhaps touched him more deeply than any of the others. I haven't known a person in racing with a more diversified background than Robert Lindsay Charlie. He's been a long-time owner. He had a short stint as a trainer. He had 17 years as a member of a famous professional punting team. He edited and published form guides. He made his mark as a radio and television presenter. He spent almost three decades in racing administration. He's authored a beautiful limited edition book and spent nine years as chairman of the Racing Hall of Fame, a role he relinquished in 2019. In briefly describing Bob Charlie, you could say he's intelligent, energetic, dedicated, a good talker and an even better listener, fiercely determined, perhaps a little stubborn at times, and wonderful company, especially when he's reciting a verse or two by his hero, Banjo Patterson. His toughness and resilience also came to the fore last year when he soundly defeated the ravages of COVID-19. Let's take a trip down memory lane with a man whose passion for racing is rivalled by that of Banjo Patterson himself. Bob Charlie, it's an absolute delight to have you on the podcast. Tappy, it's lovely to be with you. And I think back over the years and when we got together and in the media, worked together for a number of years, it's lovely to hear you as always. And uh, I'm very uh, pleased to be able to uh, tell a few yarns today. Bob, congratulations on that widely applauded induction into the Hall of Fame, a very fitting acknowledgement for decades of devotion to this industry. Uh, John, it is a very touching thing. Um, you don't, you know, you love, there's many, many people that I've met in my life who love love horse racing and, and spend their lives in horse racing. I think it was Banjo who said once, the only cure for horse racing is death uh, because <laughs> it's it's one of those things that you, you once you get become passionate about racing, uh, 
there's never a dull day in your life because the races are on somewhere and whether you're a breeder or an owner or a punter uh, or a racegoer who just likes to go and see the marvellous thoroughbred, uh, it stays with you for the whole of your life. And so uh, the tribute that was paid to me by induction into the Hall of Fame caps off uh, a career that uh, I've enjoyed, uh, the diversification of which I've thoroughly enjoyed and had a go at many things, succeeded at some of them, maybe <laughs> not done too so well at others. But anyway, I'm still here. And uh, and uh, the score is uh, Charlie won COVID nil. <laughs> a score to be proud of. Now, Bob, your love of jumps racing is well known and so is your regular attendance at the famous Cheltenham Jumps Festival in England. Now, you were on your way home from London last year when the first little telltale symptoms of COVID emerged. I think you were actually on the flight halfway home. You felt crook. Yeah, John, um, I go to Cheltenham and I stay with great friends uh, and, and there's a lot of people who stay in the same house. Sometimes there's 20 of us and a uh, big country house. Um, I couldn't swear to exactly when I got COVID, but got to remember I was at four days of the meeting, mixing with a lot of people. I think one day I was at the bar and probably that might have been the day when I was with a whole group of fellas and uh, probably contracted it that day. But as you, you're probably aware, you don't know you've got it. Mm-hmm. And it, it manifests itself sometimes later. And that's why I have great sympathy with the authorities uh, worldwide, but particularly in this country, where, you know, a person can appear to be in very good health one day and three days later they've contracted COVID, but they've actually contracted it earlier, but they didn't know they were sick. Yeah. And so in my case, it was only when I was coming home that I, I really felt very... I felt really sick on the flight home and strangely enough, when I got off in Sydney, uh, I couldn't see any signs about uh, self-isolating or anything like that. Uh, I drove back up to where I live in Port Macquarie the next day. My wife took me into the hospital and then they put me straight into intensive care Mm. where I lost 12 kilos and stayed there for uh, oh, uh, I, I can't remember exactly, about, about two weeks, mm. and then came home and was on oxygen for a month, and little by little, uh, my breathing improved, mm. and by the end of April, I was back into the hospital, and they showed me my lungs and said I was clear. Now, uh, the point was that when I got it, and when I was in intensive care, they were sufficiently concerned about me, because mm. I'm 82 years of age, yeah. that... Uh, they called my children to the hospital and uh, fortunately the very next day my oxygen levels went down instead of, you know, we, you, you can you can only go up to about level five after which you mm. not much they can do for you. Mm. Bob, it uh, gives you a cold shiver looking back on it now. And yet, John, I, I, I know I was very sick. I know I, you know, was was I had difficulty breathing, but not that gasping for breath sort of thing that Mm. you hear about people having. And so I never, ever, it never crossed my mind that I was on the way out. I, I, Mm. it just never crossed my mind. And so fortunately uh, on the day I turned around and my lungs started to react to the oxygen, Mm. um, from then on, I just, uh, onwards and upwards, although it took a long time. Mm. Bob, it's reminiscent of that wonderful old yarn about the gentleman who refused flatly to end his own life because there was an untried yearling in the top paddock. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> exactly, exactly. No one committed suicide with an unraised two-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> Your pedigree is a very interesting one. You descend from a background of art and literature. Your maternal grandfather was Lionel Lindsay, who in 1941 became Sir Lionel Lindsay, a member of a very famous Australian family. John, uh, I spent a lot of time with my grandparents because early in my life, I think I was seven or eight years of age, my parents went overseas because my elder sister, 10 years older than I, still alive, Mm. wanted to be an actress 
and she went to England. My parents sort of went over to settle her in, mm. and she then went onto the London stage and television and films and has been an actress until, oh, probably in her mid-'80s, but now mm. she's in her mid-'90s, in 93. Mm. But, uh, John, uh, I grew up with art all around me, living with grandfather, watching him uh, do etchings and uh, talk about uh, artists and literature. Uh, it was a, a marvellous experience. Um, and yet, strangely enough, although he'd never had the slightest thing to do with racing in his life, mm. it was his wife, my grandmother, Jean, who actually encouraged me to have a bet on the Saturday to get the form guide out or, or yeah. whatever it was in the paper in those days I can't remember and say you have a pick in this race and I'll have a pick mm. you can have sixpence on yours you see and I used to do that and listen to the races listen to Lockie Melville and Ken Howard mm. and uh, you know I was hooked I was hooked mm. really hooked from the age of eight or nine I, racing was just, uh, just what I wanted to do mm. When your grandfather Lionel moved to Sydney from Ballarat uh, under the encouragement of his famous brother Norman. Um, he applied for a job with a wonderful old newspaper called the Evening News and he had to go for an interview with the newspaper's editor and that editor uh, was to become an iconic Australian uh, poet and balladeer. Yes, in fact... Norman wrote to Lionel, because in those days that's, that's, that's all the communication was, he wrote, and said, there's a man named Patterson who's the editor of the Evening News, the largest circulation newspaper in New South Wales. Mm. Uh, you should come here. You might get a job as the cartoonist. Well, he did. He got the job and stayed 20 years on the Evening News, I think roughly 20 years, formed a firm friendship with A.B. Patterson, and, uh, in fact, Patterson was best man at my grandfather's wedding to Jean mm. Dyson, who was mm. also from an artistic family, the Dysons. Will Dyson was the uh, major war artist on the Somme in the First World War. So, mm. uh, And his brother Ted was an artist as well. So uh, art <laughs> from both sides. And not that I could draw a line, John, but uh, it did help me when I was writing that book, Heroes and Champions, that I had an appreciation of art. Mm. Do you recall ever having been in the company of your grandfather's brother, Norman Lindsay, whose name is perpetuated in his paintings, etchings and sculptures? Hmm. Yeah, I never met Norman. Um, they had a falling out, the two brothers, and uh, although they probably still corresponded, uh, they didn't. I, I never met Norman. I met Daryl. Uh, and uh, I also, strangely enough, as a very small boy at about seven or eight, I met a, a notable Australian named R.G. Menzies because he came to the house more than once. He and grandfather were great friends. Mm. Bob, um, what were the impressions of Banjo Patterson that have uh, come down through the generations uh, in the Lindsay and Charlie families? Do you recall... Uh, mention of his characteristics, uh, you know, his, his general uh, demeanour? Yes, uh, I think a couple of things stand out. He wasn't a man who suffered fools gladly. He wasn't a man who uh, – um, uh, he wasn't interested in small talk. He was interested – Firstly, in horses, his greatest passion, of course, was horses, mm. and it's often forgotten when people read his poetry and about his service in the wars that the horse was uppermost in his mind. He said, in fact, and I quote him, I run a few steeplechase races as a young man, and I think I'm prouder of those victories than I am of anything I've written. Now, that's a fairly remarkable statement. Mm. And uh, he, he, uh, uh, he wasn't lacking in humour, but he, he wasn't sort of, from what I can gather, mm. he wasn't sort of hail fellow well met. He, he, he was like a, a lot of country men. He was, uh, took everything on its merits, nothing for granted. Mm. And, uh, uh, but uh, through him... Um, uh, there's a connection, a connection to the other side of the family, the Charlie side of the family, because 
Patterson and Morant, Harry Breaker Morant, were uh, contemporaries, and they both rode in steeplechase races. And Morant, uh, Patterson said that Morant was admired for his dash and courage, and he would travel miles to ride a horse, a dangerous horse that nobody else would ride. Mm. And there's a marvellous story about that that Patterson wrote in one of his books that uh, Morant came to Sydney and rode a horse in a steeplechase at Ride, and uh, this horse, nobody else could ride it. Mm. It was a mare that nobody could ride. Anyway, uh, going over one of the jumps, she floundered and rolled, fell over and rolled on him, and when they got to him, they thought he was breathing his last. He was flat as a flounder. Mm. So uh, they somehow got him back, I suppose, a stretcher in those days, horse-drawn stretcher, I suppose. Mm. They got him back to a shed because that's all the jockey's room would have been, just a shed, mm. and uh, laid him out. And they went looking for a priest because they didn't think he would survive, and they couldn't find a priest. But they found Patterson, who probably had ridden in the race, and Patterson was a solicitor, of course, so... He uh, he came to sort of uh, administer the last rites, of it were, and uh, he came to the door of the shed and he called out in a loud, saw Morant lying, then he called out in a loud voice, what do you have, Morant? Brandy and soda was the quick reply. So, <laughs> so, so Morant was actually, uh, as he often did, um, sort of acting, and uh, yeah. unfortunately uh, it came to an untimely end, as we both know. In South Africa. But, sorry, why I say there was a connection mm. was that Harry and Breaker Morant, for a period of time, lived in Richmond, New South Wales, and broke horses in for my grandfather, mm. who had a, a stud there of hackneys and coaches. Mm. And uh, when he was leaving Australia, uh, when he finally leaving Australia, Morant, uh, in two of his poems, he mentioned the thing that he was saddest to leave behind was old Cavalier, his horse. Mm. The Cavalier was out of a mare called Clara, which was my, an unusual name, my grandmother's name. So Cavalier was read by grandfather and written by Morant. Before leaving family matters, we've got to acknowledge the adventures of your paternal grandfather, Philip Charlie, who went to Broken Hill in the days of the silver boom. And he was one of a syndicate of seven to pool their resources in the search for that precious commodity. And he struck it rich. Well, he did. And uh, just going back to in time, uh, he was orphaned, he and his siblings. And he, he was working in a solicitor's office in Melbourne at the age of 13, would you believe? Mm. And... Uh, he had bronchial problems and they decided that he needed to find a dry climate. So he was sent out to Broken Hill to work for George McCulloch and uh, he quickly uh, rose in the estimation. He became, uh, apart from being a boundary rider to begin with, he became uh, a trustee and sort of living in the main house. And when he went home for his first holiday, oh, sorry, and then they formed this syndicate of seven. They each put £100 in, a lot, a lot of money in those days, £100. Mm. He's probably getting about two quid a week, two or three quid a week. Mm. Anyway, uh, uh, he went home for a holiday and uh, came back uh, when he was 18 from Melbourne and uh, he went out to the diggings and uh, he asked the two fellas who were in the in the trench or in the mine digging what well, they'd found anything, and they said, no, just uh, carbonates of, uh, of copper, mm. and which they weren't looking for. And he grabbed a large piece of rock and got his penknife out and flicked it, and his hand started to shake, and he said, chlorides of silver, and they said, no, rubbish. Anyway, mm. he put four or five big rocks in his saddlebag and rode back to the homestead. They sent the rocks to Adelaide and they were assayed as the richest silver load in the world. So from the age of 18, as a boundary rider, he was a millionaire at the age of 20. In fact, there's a book which uh, describes something about Australia's millionaires in the year 1900 and he was one of eight millionaires Mm. in the country. Mm. Uh, He put all his money into property and mines all over uh, the country. He opened a mine, uh, believe it or not, in 
uh, in New Guinea with a man named Herbert Hoover who became President of the United States because mm. Herbert Hoover was a mining engineer and he was in Australia at the time and they opened the Great Latoka mine in New Guinea and also they opened another mine at, uh, he did, grandfather with other partners uh, in um, the Great Fitzroy in Rockhampton. Mm. But uh, his mining ventures eventually uh, led him to uh, not ruin but he lost most of his fortune uh, prospecting in, in mines. And, mm. But he did introduce two breeds into Australia, two notable breeds. One was the Hackney breed of horse. And the other one was Red Pole Cattle, and he won mm. all the prizes at the shows in those times, but eventually had to sell it all. And my father told me that he was heartbroken when... His father was eventually selling perfectly matched pairs of carriage horses in the 1920s for a pound a pair. Goodness me. And mm. so uh, eventually the stud was closed. Mm. You attained your education at Sydney's famous Barker College and you had two great mates there, Peter Marsh and Bill Murphy. And Bill Ma- and Neil Marks. Don't forget Neil Marks. <laughs> mm. yeah, Peter Marsh was the son of a bookie and... Uh, uh, because I was the school bookie, as soon as I left school, I went to the races and at one stage, uh, Clark for his uh, father, Jimmy, who was a rails bookie at one stage. Mm. Uh, and so uh, that was another uh, sort of uh, notch in uh, my uh, early days of racing in which I uh, was a the races every meeting, every single meeting, provincials and metropolitan. Mm. Mind you, John, you've got to remember in those days, there was Saturday racing in Sydney, mm. there was a provincial meeting one during the week, and sometimes, not every Wednesday, there was a win- there was a meeting in the metropolitan area. So the mm. most you could have was three meetings a week, sometimes only two. Mm. There was another ambition burning away at this stage of your life, and that was to train a racehorse. You applied to the AJC for a licence, but your credentials didn't suit them at the time. Uh, what did you, you move from there to the Newcastle Jockey Club? Yeah, I I went to live at Terrigal. And Terrigal was in the uh, Newcastle and Hunter Registration Board area. So it was out of Sydney. And I, this mare called Ellery was bred in New Zealand mm. and my two partners in the League of Eagles, Don Scott and Clive Everett and I raced together, was trained by Peter Lawson at Randwick. And when Peter said to us it wasn't good enough for the metropolitan area, uh, they, the other two weren't interested in it. So uh, I took the horse over from them. I can't remember whether they leased it to me or whether I bought it so long ago. Mm. And uh, 1960. Two or 63, uh, and I trained her on the beach at Terrigal, mm. and then there was a bloke there named Barry Rosa had a float, and he used to lend me his float to take her into Gosford Racecourse to get her ridden by a jockey. Mm. And uh, so I trained her, and I had help from a bloke called Joe Martin, who was, was a, a very capable trainer, only with one or two horses. And... Uh, uh, one day I took her in there and I was very late getting there and the jockeys had all gone. So I had to ride her myself, ride her work myself. Now, <laughs> I, never considered, I, I never considered myself to be a good horseman, but uh, at, at least we were able to win a race with her at Newcastle. Peter Burnett rode her over <laughs> 2,300 metres and she won pretty easily. Yeah. And unfortunately, Peter died only a year or two ago. Yes, he did. I remember Peter well. He was a jovial character, concentrated yeah. mainly on the northern region, but was very yeah, capable. Yeah. He'd sneak to town every now and again and ride a winner yeah, too. Yeah, he was a lightweight, mm. lightweight rider, yeah. You had a fleeting impulse to break into the race broadcasting field at one stage. I did, and, and uh, I came to grief. What happened was... Um, I, uh, through Peter Marsh, Jimmy Marsh, I'm sorry, Jimmy Marsh, the father, mm. uh, he was going out the field at the Burke race meeting, two-day meeting, and he said, uh, the, the fellow out there that sort of runs the races was a fellow called Charlie Moxham, and the pub and was a big bookie. Mm. He said, they haven't got a race caller. Would you want to come and call this two-day race meeting? Mm. Which I did, went out there and 
believe me, John, as you know, uh, one of the hardest things to call is a two-horse race. Mm. And uh, there were a couple of two-horse races over the two days. Uh, and uh, But Burke was a pretty thriving town in those days. Uh, a lot of big punters around. Anyway, uh, that was an experience. And then I went to the ABC to try and get a job. And they said that they'd take me on, but only if I'd do or any sort of sports, work mm. in the sports department and, you know, maybe rostered on to go to the cricket or the league or whatever it was. And I said, no, I'm only interested in racing. If I can't do racing, I don't want the job. So mm. uh, Jeff May gave me a chance at, uh, uh, to call a race one day at uh, Kembla and I, I fluffed that up. I called the wrong winner. <laughs> uh, and uh, then uh, after that, I sort of uh, – you've got to remember, at those times, John, there were, I think – six stations in Sydney broadcasting racing. Mm. There was 2FC, 2GB, 2UE, 2KY, 2UW and 2SM, six stations Correct. every Saturday broadcasting racing. Mm. So your chances of getting a job in as a broadcaster uh, in those days, that's, I'm talking about the 50s, mm. was pretty slim. And, uh, uh, and so I... I, I put the queue in the rack on that issue and then sort of came back uh, when I joined you and mm. Kenny Callender uh, in radio and television or much later, back in the late 70s, mm. mid, mid to late 70s. Correct. Well, to add another... And in, fact, in fact, John, that occurred uh, because Max Presnell mm. asked me to come on the uh, Saturday morning show with he and Ian Craig, I think it was called Turf Time, wasn't it? it was yes, it was, Turf Time. 2KY. And, yeah. uh, and, and all I had to do was give a, a tip, one tip every Saturday, and then when one of the two boys went on holidays, I'd come in and do it in the studio with whoever was there, either Ian or Max. Mm -hmm. And uh, then from there I went to uh, 2GB, mm -hmm. wait a minute, 2KY, uh, then I had my own show on 2KY briefly for half an hour, mm -hmm. and then I went to 2GB where I had about I had two hours on air mm -hmm. where I did open line on racing, and uh, I loved that. In fact, I loved that more than anything I did in the media mm -hmm. uh, because I had I'd been working at that stage on uh, two newspapers, the uh, Sportsman and the Referee, uh, and then um, uh, then I got into Channel 9 with you and uh, Kenny back in about, oh, I can't remember, John, about the late 70s, I think, somewhere mm. around about the late 70s, mm. where we did the Sunday show. And remember that day when the set fell on my heads? <laughs> Vividly. For people, uh, for the uninitiated, uh, the set was called a flat by the floor crew. It was a fake wall, in other words. Uh, but it was pretty heavy and for some reason it decided to topple over and clobber Bob, Charlie and myself right on the back of the scone. I think it was, it was the shock more than anything else. We, we escaped uninjured. Yeah. And just for the just for, so people will uh, – we can set the scene. Uh, back in those days, uh, the cricket would be on and mm. they would go off for lunch generally I think 40 minutes for lunch, mm. and we'd come on while they were at lunch. So we generally had about 30 minutes on air, and uh, it would be pretty tight. You know, they'd, you'd get to the, towards the end of our show, and mm. uh, the director, Brian Morelli, would be counting you down, and you'd go on, they'd go straight back to Richie or whoever it was at the cricket. Yeah. Well, of course, one particular day he, he comes up and he says, you fellas have got a stretch. A stretch is a term meaning you've got to keep talking for mm. another five minutes before they went back on. And you and I, <laughs> I don't know what we talked about, Tabby, but we talked for five minutes. Yeah, well, I think a lot of it was uh, fabrication. <laughs> <laughs> but we managed it comfortably, Bob. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, before this uh, media era in your life, you added another string to your bow by gaining a bookmaker's licence. And you gave it a quick little try, fielding at the provincial tracks. And you've got a wonderful story about Melbourne Cup Day of 1960. Yes, well, uh, I had a licence and um, I must have been betting all right because they put me on the rails. And do you realise that in those days, back in the 50s and the 60s, uh, Melbourne Cup Day 
in Sydney, the meeting was at the provincials. It wasn't until much later that the mel- that, 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 that it, it moved to Randwick on the same day. So the provincial clubs were taken in turns to have Melbourne Cup Day, and this particular year uh, was uh, at Wyong, mm-hmm. and I'm feeling on the rails. Uh, John, I'm testing my memory here, but I think... I think High Jinx won the race, didn't it? I'm yeah. sure High Jinx won the race, but I she think Tullock started favourite. Tullock was favourite, uh, never got into the race. And, and I, I laid Tullock, and by some miracle, uh, oh. I did not write High Jinx's name. So whatever was in the bag <laughs> stayed in the bag. I got the lot. Well, she was 66 and, uh, to 1, Bob. I can understand it. Yeah, that's right. So I was fortunate enough not to write his name. Mm. But uh, I didn't enjoy bookmaking. Um, I much much preferred punting uh, because you're on the ground and you're in total control of what you're going to do, whereas on the stand you're very much at the whim of what the punters do with you. And so I only lasted about 18 months. I gave it away after that. Mm. It's been good dinner party material, though. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the the good part about it was uh, later on in administration I I was able to sort of bring my knowledge of punting and bookmaking uh, to the fore when uh, we were talking about licensing bookmakers and mm. bookmakers allocated stands and all that sort of thing. You gained racetrack prominence as a member of a professional punting trio named the Legal Eagles by a journalist from memory, Frank Brown. There was Clive Evatt, there was Don Scott and there was Bob Charlie and your betting attracted plenty of attention for a long time. Yeah, well, in fact, John, we first came to prominence when Fine and Dandy won the Doncaster. And the reason we came to prominence is because the previous week, Fine and Dandy had won uh, at Rose Hill, I think, over 1,400. Mm-hmm. And the bookmakers had the view that the horse could not run a strong mile at Randwick. And so Scott was wrapped in the horse and... We backed the horse, I think we got 66 to 1. We got a long price anyway. Mm. Backed it for a lot of money. And on the Monday, Frank Brown wrote an article in which he said, the trio of young legal eagles who helped themselves to many thousands of dollars on Saturday with the victory of Fine and Dandy, how long they keep that money will determine on how quickly they go back to their law books. Mm. Well, he couldn't have been more wrong because we kept at it for 17 years. Mm. And uh, um, Don and I, well, Scott taught me to do the form, and as anybody who's listening and knows anything about punting knows that he wrote four or five books about the science of punting. Mm. And uh, uh, Clive Everett didn't do any form. He put the money on mainly. Uh, mm. And so uh, we, we, the secret of it really was that Scott would frame a market and he would only bet to that market. If he marked a horse three to one and it was six to four, there's no way he'd back it. Mm. If he marked it three to one and it was 20 to one, he'd back it as though it was a three to one chance. So mm. you, you, you often had wins on horses that were your fourth and fifth pick in the race. So uh, it was very hard to follow us because we backed, sometimes we'd back as many as five horses in a race. Mm. And uh, we did that for 17 years. Mm. Uh, and then the margins were getting tighter and tighter and uh, Scott gave it away in 1974 to write plays. Mm. I kept going for two more years and then gave it away myself. Mm. You and did all of then, the provincial I hardly, ha- I hardly ever have a bet now. Yes, I know that. Yeah, astonishing. Bob, um, uh, the provincial form uh, was your assignment, wasn't it, most weeks? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, while I was sort of going to the provincials at all, all the time, uh, the great journalist Bert Lilly said to me one day, look, he said, you should stand for the committee of the Hawkesbury Race Club. He said, your family all come from that area and uh, the club... Uh, need some young blood. So he said, you should stand. So I stood for the committee. There are, there are, there are only 53 voting members, would you believe? It was mm. around about that number. Mm. And I stood and I got elected. And I stayed there from 1977, I think, 77 mm. to 1983. And then I got elected to the AJC committee in 1984. Mm. So it really it was Bert Lilly that started me on the, on the road administration. Mm. 
and uh, I, uh, I enjoyed my time uh, there. I mean, uh, it, it was one of the toughest. Some of it was some of the toughest times of my life. I think uh, uh, basic administration, particularly when you're, as we were in those days, the AJC was running the industry, uh, hearing appeals, licensing, stud book, drugs, er everything was under our control. And so um, you didn't get too many days off, John, I can tell you that. No. Bob, just stand by for a moment. We're going to clear a commitment on the podcast and we'll be back with Bob Charlie after this. Weanlings by several high-profile stallions will go under the hammer at the Inglis Great Southern Sale on June 13th and 14th at Oaklands Junction. Weanlings by capitalist exceed and excel more than ready, zoo star, written tycoon, Piero, extreme choice, flying arty, Lonro and Dundeal are just a few of the sires represented. First season sires with progeny in the sale include Justify, trapeze artist, Grunt, written by Brave Smash, Harry Angel, National Defence, Sioux Nation and Mendelssohn. This is the sale where horses like Gitra, Montefilia, Behemoth and On The Bubbles made their first public appearances. For those who enjoy the challenge of buying weanlings at the right price and turning them over for handsome profits the following year, this sale has been described as a pinhooker's paradise. 408 weanlings will be on offer over two days at the 2021 Great Southern Sale, June 13th and 14th at Oaklands Junction in Melbourne. Bob, soon after your appointment to the AJC committee, new ground was broken when females were licensed to act as bookies clerks. And on your very first day as an AJC committeeman, you went down to the betting ring to see how it was all going. I went down to see my old mate Jim Marsh and his daughter-in-law Sue was one of the first ladies to be licensed as a bookmaker's clerk. So I shook hands with all of them and gave Sue a kiss. And as I walked away, Jim called after me. He said, hey, Bob, he said, if you achieve nothing else in administration, you're the first AJC commitment to kiss a bookies clerk. <laughs> True. 1992 was a big year for you. You became chairman of the AJC. 92, 92, 1992. No, yep, 92. You became chairman on the expiration of Jim Bell's term. Now, yeah. this was a defining moment in your life to a bloke who'd worshipped Sydney racing since the days of the sixpenny bets with Grandma's SP bookie. This was the most humbling moment of your life. I'd say so, John, because, uh, you know, being a gambling man, when I had sort of decided to go into administration, if you asked other gambling men about my, my chance of becoming the chairman of the AJC, they would have said 100 to 1 would be the shortest price on, on offer, maybe mm. 1,000 to 1. And so uh, it was, uh, apart from the Hall of Fame induction last week, it was definitely the most uh, uh, not humbling. Always, not thrilling, uh, humbling. humbling and, mm. and uh, uh, the achievement sank in more than anything else mm. that I'd done. And, uh, uh, you know, to, to think that my colleagues thought I was worthy of that of that position. Uh, and then we we had a uh, some really tough times because the government was determined to privatise the New South Wales TAB and uh, that was an extremely difficult negotiation. And the reason which most people wouldn't understand is that it wasn't a matter of doing a deal with the government. Uh, it was a matter of doing a deal with the government and convincing the trots and the dogs to come along with you mm. because it was a three-code negotiation. And so we would meet. I was chairing probably 20 people in the room and uh, we would meet, and sometimes we wouldn't break until eight or nine o'clock at night, mm. and we'd be arguing the point about this this thing and that thing and 
what happened to the Racecourse Development Fund and all this sort of thing. And it went on mm. for months. And uh, uh, fortunately, at the end of it all, uh, uh, we reached an agreement with government. Racing got an extra $46 million a year mm. uh, and uh, uh, was privatised. The government uh, did that by taking a lower take out of uh, the gambling dollar. And so um, that injection of funds, and I have no idea what that, that amount is today, but uh, um, that injection of funds allowed racing to uh, really get on its feet. Uh, and subsequently, much after my time, uh, there have been two uh, or uh, one particularly noteworthy uh, happening, uh, which was when uh, Peter Volandis uh, took on the corporate bookmakers and won his case, in, or won the case for racing New South Wales in court, which the other states didn't do, by the way. Mm. And uh, that injected another huge income stream uh, that wasn't uh, there hitherto from the corporate mm. bookmakers who were virtually mm. taking over racing. Mm. So that, uh, that that was a that, you know that was a defining moment, uh, 1996, when the mm. tab was privatised. Now, before the TAB privatisation, and in your very early days as chairman of the AJC, and this is a good story, you thought it might be fortuitous to go and see the then premier. Nick Greiner, just to kick a few things around on racing, a courtesy call. Uh, he was very pleasant, uh, didn't give you the slightest hint uh, of what was going to happen a few days later. Three days after your meeting, the Premier announced a 1% increase on all win and place betting. You were in total shock. Uh, John, yes, um the details of that are uh, a bit hazy in my mind, but it was uh, a, a, a real death stroke because 1% uh, is a huge amount of money when you take the amount of money that government was receiving out of racing. At that stage, out of racing and all gambling, racing, uh, the government, the New South Wales government was receiving somewhere around about 1.2, 1.4 billion a mm. year uh, from taxpayers. Uh, and I think there were only one or two other sources of revenue greater. One was stamp duty, as I recall. Um, and uh, fortunately, uh, with uh, a lot of negotiation uh, and including uh, members of the um, uh, the uh, racing department of government, people like Ken Brown, Darrell Lowenthal, and people like that, we mm. were able to point out to the government what a ridiculous uh, impost that was. It would cut their revenue in time because the punters aren't silly. Uh, you know, it's adding uh, a, a burden on the punter and uh, that can only result in uh, uh, less turnover in, my, in our view. And fortunately, uh, uh, they uh, turned it around. I think that was my first meeting with the late John Fay, who was mm. arguably one of the greatest politicians I ever met, a great fellow, and uh, mm. I think he understood our our problems. Uh, and uh, and funny enough, at that stage, I think Joe Hockey was the, was uh, in the Treasury Department in mm. New South Wales. So we had a pretty some strong people who understood the problem, and uh, uh, fortunately, the government reversed that decision. You've never been comfortable, have you, with the Temby report? on the New South Wales racing industry in the mid-1990s. Under the leadership of Ian Temby, QC, the investigation into the AJC's control of racing eventually led to the dismantling of the principal club. It didn't sit well with you at the time and it doesn't to this day. It doesn't, John. Uh, and uh, Temby was what you might call a hired gun. He, The Labor Party were determined to 
the wings of the AJC. They tried to do it twice before in history and not been able to, mm. and they were absolutely determined that this time they were going to make sure that the AJC no longer ran racing. Now, there's little or no question that the AJC in administering racing subsidised the smaller clubs to some fairly large extent. And uh, we uh, couldn't see that any good could come out of this. Uh, and I uh, went on television and argued the case for it, but unfortunately uh, got nowhere because the government was absolutely determined to do it. And to this day, John, um, I'm not too sure that I can name too many benefits of that thing, just as I'm not too sure that the amalgamation of the two clubs, the AJC and the STC, also brought much benefit to racing. However, um, I perhaps am looking at it through rose-coloured glasses. I've been out of it for a long time, and uh, maybe I'm not seeing the wood for the trees. In the wake of the Tembi report, the New South Wales Thoroughbred Racing Board was created and you were appointed its first chairman. Bob, that must have yeah, been that, a hell oh, of a job because you had to transfer staff and assets over. Uh, a very complex issue. It was. We had – the board was composed of three from the AJC, three from the STC, I think from memory – two from the provincials and two from the country, something like that. Mm. Uh, and uh, we had to transfer the assets of the AJC. We had to um, uh, transfer the staff mm. into new premises. And uh, I'm always grateful for my dear friend Jim Murphy, who was the first CEO of Thoroughbred Racing New South Wales mm. as my chief executive did a marvellous job and uh, has continued to work in the racing industry until his retirement recently. Um, so uh, that wasn't an easy time. Uh, and shortly after that, after we'd sort of achieved the, the crossover of staff and assets, uh, the principal clubs of Australia was formed into a body called, uh, which is now known as Racing Australia. It was called the Australian... Racing Board, but it's now called Racing Australia. Mm. And uh, I became the first chairman of that. Uh, and that was all the states uh, and where we would meet twice a year. Mm. And we we're largely a regulatory body working on rules, working on uh, uh, matters like the stud book mm. uh, and uh, drug detection uh, that sort of thing. Uh, but uh, it's evolved since then uh, and uh, there's been uh, terrific people that have followed me in that role, including John Massara. And uh, so, um, uh, you know, uh, I think racing is... I'm very proud of racing. I'm proud to be a part of racing. And I think um, that racing in Australia is conducted as well, if not better, than any other country in the world. And I say that advisedly because I've been to racing in most places in the world. And to give you an example, uh, the Americans think it's, used to, in my day anyway, think it was quite a feat when they could broadcast a meeting from one state to the other. We do it every four minutes. Yes. We've got races on every four minutes from every part of, mm. of the country. Uh, and it happens almost seamlessly. Races are run pretty much the time. You don't. You, you, occasionally you get races that are delayed at the barrier for mm. horse casting a plate or something like that. But uh, they run on time, uh, the stewards do a great job. The rules are obeyed, uh, and uh, there are always going to be uh, people who will try and take advantage of the rules. There are always, in any walk of life, people who don't play by the book, and uh, it's always considered that it's a, a shocking thing for racing when somebody is put out of the game because of drug use. But that happens in many, many other theatres of life. And mm. as long as you can detect those things and 
uh, and guard against them by enforcing the rules, uh, you can't do you can't do anything but that. You can't do anything mm. but your best. In two thousand and four, you slipped gracefully away from racing administration and began the monumental task of writing a book on your favourite subject. Took you seven years to produce a um, magnificent limited edition tome called Heroes and Champions. 280 pages, Bob. Well, John, I'd always known that the AJC had a marvellous collection of paintings and so did the VRC. In fact, they've, strangely enough, got about an equal number of great paintings. And I was in England at Cheltenham and I went to the Jockey Club and uh, saw all the paintings on the wall there and I thought, God, strike me. I mean, all those marvellous paintings in Australia, very few people ever get to see them. So I started a search to look where I could find paintings with race clubs, with libraries, with galleries, and in private hands. And, and a lot of people were good enough to lend me their paintings so that I could have them photographed. And so out of 750-odd paintings, I picked the best 150-odd, and uh, well, not the, necessarily the best, but the most representative 150. And as, as you said, it took me seven years to write it. Yeah. But uh, I'm very proud to say that uh, um, there are hardly any copies left. I think I might be able to scratch up about 20. Mm. And uh, it sold at $150 a copy plus postage, mm. uh, and it virtually sold out. So um, I'm not going to reprint. I'm, I'm just about finished my second book. So, And mm. it's not on art. It's about all the pioneers in racing in Australia and where racing started in every state. And mm. uh, For instance, just to give you an example, John, uh, the first race meeting, first organised race meeting in Australia was held in Hyde Park in Sydney. The winning post is where St James Station is. Mm. The horses used to race along what is now Elizabeth Street, mm. go up around the law courts, <laughs> past uh, the cathedral, along College Street mm. and down as far almost as Liverpool Street and that was a... Uh, approximately a mile and a quarter round, mm. and they raced there uh, in 1810, 1811, 1812, 1813, then racing was banned, mm. and they came back and raced there again in 1820 and 21, I think. Mm. Uh, and then they moved out to uh, what is the site now of Royal Sydney Golf Course, which in those days there was a race course there, mm. and uh, then later to Missenden Road in um, Camberdown, where... On Governor Bly's next to Governor Bly's land, uh, where mm. the third race course was, and so on. So, mm. uh, I've spent a lot of time uh, investigating in every state of Australia, not just New South Wales. Mm. Oh, countless hours! That first yeah, meeting well, in Hyde yeah. Park must have been a ripper, Bob. The the history books tell us that there was a great deal of insobriety uh, at the first uh, couple of race meetings, and, yeah. and Governor Macquarie uh, was horrified. He was. Uh, yeah, so I think um, one of his solutions uh, in the later one of the later years was to insist that the races started at ten o'clock in the morning. Mm. Uh, so that uh, at that stage there weren't too many people imbibing. Uh, but um, uh, he wasn't really a racing man, Macquarie. But no, his no. Uh, lieutenant governor Morris O'Connell was. The, mm. the regiment had come from India, where they'd experienced racing. Mm. So uh, it was quite a quite a great meeting, and, and Australia's probably you'd have to say one of the most prominent citizens in Australia in the 19th century was W. C. Wentworth, mm. who argued for uh, uh, New South Wales at least have its own uh, to be self-governing. Mm. Uh, he wrote a winner at that first meeting. Mm. He wrote two winners, I think, actually, the first meeting. Cracked it for a double. Yeah, his father's horse called Gig, G-I-G. Bob, you came through the era of huge crowds, crowded betting rings, amazing betting plunges, enormous excitement, an atmosphere you could cut with a knife, and the characters, the colourful, unforgettable, uh, Runyon-esque characters. You rub shoulders with many of them. Well, uh, you know, there were 
the book there were so many bookmakers. I think when I started in racing, there were four hundred bookmakers: a Paddock, Ledger, and Flat. Now, if you started off in the flat, you paid two bob to get in the flat, and if you happened to crack it for a winner, you thought you'd you'd improve and go to the Ledger. So you'd between races, you'd go across a duckboard and get into the Ledger, where there are another hundred odd bookies. <laughs> yes, and. <laughs> You pay, you pay. I think ten bob for that. I can't. Five, maybe five bob. Five bob, I think, to get yeah. into the into the uh, St. Ledger transfer. And then if thing. you really backed a couple <laughs> more winners and you wanted to go into the paddock where it all happened, yeah, you'd pay a pound at the gates to go through into the paddock. Mm. And uh, uh, the atmosphere was just electric. I mean, the mm. bookies shouting out their odds, people crushing through to get to try and get on, and. Uh, Great bookmakers like Ken Ranger, probably the biggest bookmaker uh, in that time. I mean, mm. there have been people who took huge bets since then, people like Bruce McHugh, mm. uh, who, who took Kerry Packer on and was betting in millions. Mm. But uh, but uh, uh, in those days, Ken Ranger was the doyen of all bookmakers. Mm. Uh, and then there was later on, there was Lester Marsh and Lenny Burke. And, uh, oh, they're holding holding thousands and then there was settling on the Monday which was also mm. hugely exciting because you'd go into Tattersall's Club mm. bookmakers would all be with their clerks sitting at tables in the long room mm. and they would settle because if you were you know professional gamblers like we were you, you, you didn't use cash you just bet on your name you know you'd go along and have a thousand on this and 400 on that and mm. you'd go in on Monday and settle up whether you won or lost mm. yeah Different era, different era, and for somebody of your vintage who can take us back uh, into that wonderful era. Yeah, and, and John, there were, there were, as you said, there were uh, so many characters in racing, people known by their nicknames, and you wouldn't have even known that. Mm. Switcher Smith and Taxi Jack and Louis the Pest and Ozzy the Barber and Nick the Greek, and you could go on all day with blokes <laughs> at the race, and that's what they were known as. Yes. You know, I mean, you... you to this day, I mightn't know what. Well, I knew the Goog was Johnny Spooner, and uh, and and uh, Jack the Crooner was Jack King, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. But that they were known by those names, mm. uh, and uh, uh, they were generally either punters or bookmakers, clerks or crushers, and you know, uh, yeah, yeah. it was a fascinating time. In order to fulfil the many roles you've undertaken in racing administration. You've needed the devotion and the support and the patience of your wife of many, many years, the ever-gracious and eternally charming Nina, who deserves a very big chunk of the credit for all of your achievements. I think you've hit the nail on the head. Uh, Nina was born as a prisoner of war. She's Ukrainian by birth Mm. and she and her family were liberated had the choice of going to either Canada or Australia. Unfortunately, they came to Australia when she was three, I think, two or three, and uh, came to Sydney, settled down in the Western Districts near uh, Blacktown, and uh, uh, she became a photographer's model, and that's how we met, Uh, and we've been married for 54 years, and, uh, uh, yeah, she's been right beside me all the way. as you said, the hostess, because when you're playing some of those roles, particularly overseas, where I represented Australia for many years, mm. uh, she uh, she was uh, gracious, and uh, and I'm very very grateful to her for the support she's given me. Because you know I've uh, I've immersed myself in this business to the point where quite often I'm away, mm. and. Uh, uh, she's been left on her own for quite long periods of time. So, uh, you know, uh, it's uh, been a good partnership, great partnership, and I'm grateful for that. John, uh, uh, one other thing that I'd like to mention is uh, two things, actually. One about jumps racing, but the other is about uh, the Copcroft family. Uh, now, John Copcroft was a great buddy of mine, as was his wife, Denise. I did the eulogy at each of their funerals. And when Denise was dying, she said to me that she didn't want to sell her mares. She wanted me to look after the mares. And I said, well, how am I going to do that? Mm. And she said, well, uh, I'm going to leave you some money to make sure that you keep breeding with those mares and never sell them. Mm. 
So I said, you better go and see a solicitor. And uh, she did, because she was sort of, you know, within within two or three months of dying. And so uh, she left uh, a substantial sum of money uh, to me and uh, other trustees, fellow trustees, and the mayors have been looked after by uh, Fred Moses and the chap that sort of manages all the breeding is a fellow called Peter Brown. Mm. And we've had quite a bit of success with those mares. We've had two really good horses, Under the Louvre, who won the Stradbroke, uh, and In Her Time, who won the Lightning, mm. and uh, I won two group ones. Galaxy. Uh, the Galaxy. Now it's started. Yeah. But the rub of the whole thing, John, is that she wanted the money when the mayors had passed on, she wanted the money to go to the Injured Jockeys Fund, which is now called the National Jockeys Trust. Mm. And so far, we've been able to give them $460,000, and it's not finished yet. Mm. So uh, I think I'm particularly proud of that because they were great friends of mine, and she endowed many other charities, including... Uh, the Smith family, St Vincent's Hospital, mm. no, no, hang on, St Vincent's Hospital, Vision Australia, uh, and uh, uh, the Salvation Army, just to name three mm. in this country. Plus, she left money to a lot of people in England. So uh, that was a, a very, very pleasant task to be able to look after Denise's wishes after she'd gone. Mm, that's a lovely story. The other but... thing was uh, was uh, the jumps racing, and uh, uh, that sort of is, 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 came to me later in life simply because I simply didn't have the time to be interested in it until I quit my administrative roles. And so I had a great mate in uh, Adelaide named uh, my, uh, my, uh, Malcolm Fricker, Mm. And he uh, he said, why don't you have a half share in this horse with me? And we won our first jumps race. And then I had a success with a fellow in Tasmania named Michael Trinder, who I've still got a horse with, running today, actually, a horse called Possession, running today at, at Devonport. Mm. And uh, uh, then I graduated and uh, to Victoria and uh, became a client of Kieran Ma, great trainer now, Kieran Ma. This was in mm. his first first couple of years as a trainer he trained for me the grand national winner and the great eastern steeplechase winner and then my other trainer patrick payne i've had lots of horses with patrick and he won the the jewel in the crown for me the grand annual at warnerville yes, it was called chaparro my my mm. mates and i own chaparro so uh that that's been a huge thrill i think i think if you put them put them down as the three most significant um uh, uh, milestones, we might yeah. say, have been an election of chairman of the AJC, mm. winning the grand annual steeplechase at Warrnambool with Chaparro in 2014 yeah. and being inducted into the Hall of Fame this year. They'd be mm. the three standouts for me. Now, Bob, I'd like to use the couple of minutes we have at our disposal uh, to remind our listeners that Banjo Patterson has had a profound influence on your life. And that prompts me to suggest that we should conclude this interview with something of your choice. Now, you tell me you've selected a poem, which is not one of his better known ones, but in your opinion, it is one of the best. It's called The Uplift, and it could be described as Banjo's way of encouraging people to try a little harder when the chips are down. that's true. That's true, John. Uh, the Uplift was written by Patterson in 1893. I think I've got the year right. But it wasn't discovered or published until many, many years later. And uh, I think probably some of his manuscripts were found years later and uh, it became his granddaughter's favourite poem, so they told me, one of his granddaughters told me. Mm. The Uplift. When the drays are bogged and sinking... It's no good sitting thinking. You must put the team together and double bank the pool. When the crops are light and weedy and the fleece is burred and seedy, next year's crops and fleeces may repay you to the full. So it's lifter, 
Johnny Lifter, put your back in it and shifter. While the jabber, jabber, jabber of the politicians flows. If your nag's too poor to travel, get down and scratch the gravel. If you'll get there, if you walk it. If you don't, you'll feed the crows. Shall we waste our time debating with this grand young country waiting for the plough and for the harrow, for the loosen and the maize? For its work alone will save us in this land that fortune gave us. There's no crop but what we'll grow it. There's no stock but what we'll raise. So when the team is bogged and sinking, it's no good sitting thinking. There's a roadway up the mountain that the old black leader knows. So it's lifter, Johnny lifter. Put your back in it and shifter. Take a lesson from the bullock. He goes slowly, but he goes. Ah, Bob, congratulations. That gave me goosebumps. And the last line, (laughs) take a lesson from the bullock. He goes slowly. He goes slowly, but, but he, he goes. goes. And I'll tell you somebody who likes that poem is Gay Waterhouse because mm. the grandfather was a bullocky. Ah. Yeah, down Waggaway. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Bob, we're out of time. The, the time went very quickly. I've enjoyed every minute of it. It's lovely to catch up again. You and I go back a hell of a long way. Thanks exactly, for your t- John. It's always been a pleasure being in your company, always been a pleasure working with you on air and thank you for the opportunity to to talk a bit about my life. Bob Charlie, it's been an absolute delight. The pleasure has been all All mine. Thanks for joining us on a podcast produced by Supernova Sound. 